Hello and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. In each episode, I talk to a leading architect about an amazing home that they have designed. By focusing on one project in detail, the podcast offers an insight into the influences behind the design and how some of the best architects from around the world have created an inspirational home. I am your host, George Bradley. I'm an architect and a director of London-based studio Bradley van der Straten. I love designing homes myself and this podcast is a great way for me to share my curiosity and enthusiasm for residential architecture with you. In this episode, I'm joined by the architect and builder Horacio Chernievsky, one of the founders of the Paraguayan studio Equipo de Arquitectura. We talk about La Casa Intermedia, a single-storey, one-bedroom home in the city of Asunción. The home has been built on a narrow plot and is characterised by distinct vaulted brick roofs that cover a sequence of living spaces. The rooms span the full width of the property and are interspersed with internal courtyards, meaning each one has a double aspect. What I love about the house is it is very private from the street, but inside reveals an oasis-like space that has been carefully put together using local craftspeople and a building process the studio has described as pretty slow and delicate. If you'd like to explore this project before or after listening to the episode, pictures and links to the architect can be found on the episode page at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I hope you enjoy listening. Horacio, thank you very much uh, for joining us and, and welcome to another Architecture Podcast. Thank you, George. Thank you for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. And we're, we're speaking to you from, um, you're speaking from Paraguay, um, and we're going to be talking about um, your project in, in the city of Asuncion, uh, La Casa Intermedia. Um, maybe if you could, I'm sure a lot of listeners will be unfamiliar with Paraguay. I've never been to Paraguay. Um, if you could maybe set the scene of just where this house is located, what this what this area is is like the suburb that the house is in. Yeah, of course. Uh, Paraguay is in the middle of South America. It's a country that, that uh, doesn't have uh, contact with the sea, but we have a lot of rivers. Um, it's located in the subtropical area, uh, so the weather is pretty hot. It's humid, and Asuncion is Paraguay's capital. So this house is located um, northeast of the city. So Asuncion is where um, one-third of the population lives. Um, The city kept growing over the years. And due to um, its rapid growth, um, there are satellite cities that are located next to Asuncion where people live, um, but they actually, it, it, it's where they sleep, not where they live. They live in Asuncion. They come to work during the day and they sleep uh, at night in those cities. That means that um, today we have two and a half million people living in, using the city, uh, but only 500 or 600,000 people actually sleep in Asuncion. So uh, approximately 2 million people come during the day and leave at night. This house is located 
next to uh, an urban developing area uh, where buildings, like 20-story buildings, are getting built. And it's, it's, it's uh, still a residential area, but it's, it's um, evolving and transforming into a, a high-rise um, zone. So yeah. the, the, the city is um, passing by um, dramatic changes in, in ex-residential areas where, you know, all of the speculation and, and the, and the uh, business industry world is, is, is developing and it's growing. So this is, um, it's, it's transforming. And these, the people then that own this house that you designed this house for, they, they are typically these people that are commuting into Asuncion and um, who, who are the people that you've designed this house for, if you could tell me a little bit about them. Okay, the owner of this house is called Matias Otto. He's a close friend. Um, he's a psychologist, a philosopher, an intellectual. Um, and he lives with his girlfriend there now. Um, and that terrain was, uh, part of a couple of terrains he had. So his idea was to create a, a like a small loft, a small house for himself. Um, and he's, he, he always gave, gave us the freedom of, uh, proposing new things, uh, creating, uh, something unique for him. Mm -hmm. And he was very open about all new ideas. Um, so the final result is, is because of him, obviously. Yeah. And it's, it's a typical kind of plot as in most people's would be familiar with this as a kind of house plot of not it's a really, rectangular, not really. it's, narrow. Yeah. Side. It's a rectangular. Yeah. But the, yeah. the, the width and the, uh, length of the terrain uh, are particular because this was part of a bigger terrain that it, that got divided into three small uh, um, rectangles. So the normal terrain here in Asuncion, like the typical standard terrain, is 12 meters wide, 30 meters uh, length deep. Um, so this is 720 wide and 26 uh, deep uh, in length. So it's, it's smaller than the normal basic terrain here. Because like I said, it got, it got fractioned, got divided. Yeah. Yeah, I think it, like in a UK sort of sense, I'm thinking like it's like a, a generous terraced house, urban plot, seven meters wide. Um, but what you've done here is something very interesting, something very different i imagine to the other houses that i've seen that are in this in this suburb i thought it'd be good if we started with you you just describing what you've done here and describing what we've got and then we can then work backwards and sort of think discuss like i'm really interested in how you then got to this as the as the final design but if you could summarize for for a listener what what is this house what does it look like okay so um the terrain had a mango tree in the middle. 
And next to the mango tree, there was a small guavira tree, which is like a, like a fruit tree, a small fruit tree. Both are, are fruit trees, actually. Um, so what we did is to locate two main uh, blocks in between the trees. And the idea was to have uh, all the spaces of the house uh, directly connected to the outside, to, to vegetation, to nature, um, with natural sunlight, cross ventilation, which are all, you know, uh, passive techniques that we use in subtropical areas uh, to cool down spaces. So um, another characteristic um, that gave identity to the image of the project was the use of uh, uncooked earth. Um, we, we, we bought a machine, uh, a manual machine, and we fabricated the bricks, uh, compressed earth blocks, um, CEB. And we used the same element to build the walls and to build the roof, basically. Um, mm -hmm. Why did we use that material? Number one, um, it's the most abundant local material we have. Um, second, the, the footprint of its fabrication, it's uh, zero to none. Um, it's none, uh, basically. Um, we used a little bit of cement because some bricks are exposed to uh, rainwater. So the cement, um, what it does is it prevents uh, erosion on the material. So um, that way we could use the material on the inside and the outside. Um, and it also gives a special... Um, uh, the, the color of the earth is, is very... It's an intense reddish brown so um it's it's also a very cool material um and uh we think it's very um it, ha it has the identity of the place mm -hmm. so um the textures are also very rich in information and uh we thought that uh the atmosphere that was created with the material would be a very uh, comfortable and cozy for for a place like that for a, for a home yeah. in, in, in in a subtropical area. Yeah, and as a form, the house. What I what I love about what you've done here is you've used these earth bricks to essentially you've you've filled the site so that the bricks first of all form a wall that goes around the perimeter of of the rectangle. And then you have a sequence of living spaces that's not in the traditional sense of house and garden. You've got a kind of sequence of starting with entry and parking at the front, a dining space, then a garden that you have to pass through to then get to a bedroom and bathroom at the back, which then has another garden. It's like a almost like a slicing through the layer of a cake of living. And over all of this, you've then got these four arches created out of brick. And that's the main the main material you've got here, there's, there's steelwork holding it up and there's glass and screens to separate these kind of layers of the cake. But essentially the brick is, is enveloping the, the site and is and covering the site in these very distinctive curved 
arches. That, that, does that about sort of summarise what, what we've got here in terms of the form of the building? Absolutely, absolutely. So we, we, we normally try to use um, like two or three materials uh, to keep, you know, the synthesis of the project. Um, we try to avoid using a lot of materials. So what we used was uh, earth, like uh, compressed earth blocks. We used the I-beams, which support the, the, the vaults, and we have concrete. We, we try to think of glass as a non-material because it's invisible and, um, you know, uh, we, we, we don't give uh, glass, uh, the material, we don't keep the glass in the material list. Um, and we normally try to use glass, like, without the, the, the metal borders for it to be more transparent. Um, mm -hmm. So many people ask, like, how do you close the house? Well, you have glasses there. Uh, on the borders, you just can't see them in some of the photos. So mm -hmm. we, we try to keep uh, the least amount of presence of glass for it to be most uh, transparent. Yeah. And there's a, there's a certain amount of flexibility in this house, isn't there? If, if we sort of took slices across the rectangle as you go through these layers of living spaces, each one is a different screen. Like the very first thing that you're welcomed with is... Again, you've used the brick in a different way on the sides. You've got solid brick walls, but then you've got a kind of screen wall with, with holes in it. That's your first kind of, you get a glimpse from the street. You could probably just about see into the first living space, but it's a kind of um, privacy screen. Was that an important aspect for your friend here, the client, in terms of uh, wanting this kind of level of flexibility of screens that could be moved and opened and, and link the spaces? Yeah, that first screen, what it does is, like, like you said, it gives a sort of um, um, privacy to the house, but it also allows the ventilation to, mm -hmm. to, to wipe the heat of that first space. So it's very important to keep ventilation all the time flowing for the spaces to cool down a bit. Um, and then since, since that first space is more of a social space, um, a, a welcome part of the, of the house, it keeps a small relation towards the urban um, um, space. So mm -hmm. we, we tried to, um, you know, um, we, we, what we did was we, we searched for that relation between the private and the public space. Uh, so it's a transition. The first space is a transition between the, the public and the private. And then you have the closed space uh, where the living, kitchen, bedroom, bathroom area um, rests. And that has uh, sheets. It has uh, curtains. Um, so whenever you want to like, close down and black out, you just put the curtains down. And uh, all of the all of the furnitures and the, the the wooden sheets transform those layers of privacy. Mm -hmm. And is the idea that you kind of the layers of privacy increase? So you is the house is like a refuge that the further you go into it, the further because the bedroom's right at the back, isn't it? And it has its own yeah, and private exactly. and, and when you get to the bedroom, you have like three layers of of privacy sheets, let's say. 
You have the first yeah. filter, then you have the curtains, then you have the wooden sheets, the movable wooden sheets. So you have to peel all of those uh, layers and you can transform all of them. So mm -hmm. it's, 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 a, it's a way of uh, a dialogue between the, the public and the private. Mm -hmm. And also like this approach architecturally, it's almost, it feels like to me, this house, that once you've got the perimeter and the walls and the sequence of spaces, they're almost like they've been there for all time. But the one thing that, that makes the house that is the architectural expression is this roof canopy. Like how important was this idea of this curved arch roof canopy to you in the design? Well, at the same time, it uh, resolves uh, space, it resolves structure, uh, it resolves uh, the disposition of the material. So vaults act like beams structurally um, because of form. Um, so we always uh, found that interesting that uh, these vaults that are like beams can resolve the roof uh, structure, and that's that's nothing new, but uh, it's a it's a resolution that explains itself, and uh, we try to always um, in our designs we try. Uh, to show how um, the structure and how the form of the space is um, was thought and is built. So we, we, we look into that honesty uh, of mm -hmm. material honesty, structural honesty. Um, so, so the building ex explains itself. Yeah. And I've noticed, I think of somewhere on the websites, on your website, there's a reference to the work of Louis Kahn. And I, I think there's a, there's definitely a sort of direct line you could draw from this house to the, the Kimball Art Museum and the, the use of vaults and how they influence the plan there. Um, but you, you were mentioning before about this honesty of, you know, or just now just about this honesty of structure. And um, I've read that we talk about the furniture as playing a sort of, key role in the structural support of the building. Um, can you tell me a little bit um, about that? Yes. Can is, is always uh, a constant feature for us. And um, we normally use him as a reference. Mm -hmm. In this case, uh, what we did was to use the, the perimeter for the functional um, aspect of the, of, of, of the house. So um, we located all of the, the kitchen, the bathroom, uh, TV area, computer, uh, wardrobe, um, everything on the sides. And um, so it's a play of words also. Uh, so the, the, the functional support is also the structural support, uh, which is something we learned from uh, Trenton Bathhouse and, and a lot of Kant's projects. So uh, it, it, it gives that a way of uh, a synthesis, right? Architectural synthesis. Um, and, and it's also an, an organized way of thinking for us. Uh, it helps us to organize the functional aspect, the structural aspect, spatial aspect. Because if you leave everything on the sides, then you have all the middle empty and free for you to mm -hmm. 
move around stuff and, 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 and make it a flexible space for living. So um, we, we, we found that to be the organizing scheme for the project. Yeah. And that, that leaves you then free to have these layers of, as you transition through and to see the, the mango tree right there in the middle. And the only thing really you've got in the middle of the plan is this is a kitchen island that's in the, in the main lounge space. So these, all these areas then at the side, do they, do they perform a structural function then as well along the perimeter of the site? Absolutely. Um, we have these uh, concrete cases um, that have concrete pillars and slabs. Um, they're about 60 to 70 centimeters deep. And inside those concrete cases, we put all the functional parts, the pincho, uh, the kitchen, TV area, wardrobe, computer, everything. Um, just to mention, the quincho here is, uh, in, in this house, the first space, is uh, a traditional area that most houses have. And it's where you cook uh, the asado, which is like a barbecue. So you normally have uh, a place to cook, um, and a place to uh, receive for social gatherings. And it's normally an intermediate space. It's, it's, uh, nowadays, you see a trend of quinchos turning into closed spaces um, mm -hmm. for the, because of the use of the air conditioning and the heat and, and, and everything. But traditionally, the quincho was always an intermediate space. So... And also because of the, the cooking and you want, you know, the wind flowing. Um, so we kept the quincho as an intermediate space, which is the receiving space of the house. Yeah. And um, the and kitchen that, is, that, in, is, is inside and that's a closed space. Yeah. That was one of the questions I was going to ask, actually, that I think sort of answering there is it's a relatively small house. It's a one bedroom house and then these two main living spaces and then the bathroom that's kind of just tucked behind um, the bedroom. But both the two main living spaces that are either side of this open courtyard with the mango tree, both of them have a, a kitchen in. And I was going to ask why have two kitchens in what is a relatively small house? Well, we, we, we don't call, well, the quincho itself uh, can be seen as a kitchen, but it has the, yeah. grill, the grill space and then it has a, uh, uh, a place for, for water and cleaning. That's it. Mm -hmm. um, you, you, you normally have in a quincho uh, a, a, a place for the grill, the barbecue, and then a place to wash the dishes and stuff. So um, we divided both spaces. One is a quincho and the other is a, a kitchen, which is used for, for, for total different purposes. Yeah. And so I'm interested in, I think with houses like this, often you need to appreciate what the normal is to understand why this is so different and so unique. What, what's the local vernacular? Like what, what did you, well, A, what, what have you learned and applied here from the local vernacular? And B is two questions. What have you, what have you ignored and fought against in terms of the local vernacular as well? Because I have a feeling that you probably have here. This is very different. Interesting question. Um, the vernacular space uh, 
what, what, what we have now is an inheritance, inheritance of um, many, many cultures. We have the, the Warani uh, culture, which is uh, the vernacular one, but we also have uh, the Spanish uh, architectural tradition and culture, um, and uh, the vernacular one, the, the, the Waranis did not build um, cities, they, they did not build um, a lot of uh, buildings because they were a nomads. Uh, they were uh, a nomadic uh, tribe, a nomadic culture. So um, their buildings were normally um, ephemeral uh, buildings. And, but they always had this uh, space for social gatherings. And the, the buildings we, we have now as uh, vernacular and traditional are buildings that have closed private um, bedroom and spaces in between a open uh, intermediate space, which is this space for social gatherings and uh, cooking and uh, resting. And so that intermediate space is the one we tried to uh, represent throughout the house, not only in the open area, but also in the closed area, which you can open and transform into an intermediate space. Because uh, the place where the living kitchen bedroom is, uh, you can open all of the windows and you'll have an intermediate space, uh, basically. So, which is pretty appropriate for our weather, our climate, um, to have a cross-ventilated, um, with a lot of shadow and contact with nature. Mm -hmm. And what, what about the sort of rebellious nature of the project? Is there, does it have a rebellious nature? Is there something that, you know, other people that are living in this suburb would think, you know, that's crazy what they've done there or that's never seen it before? Maybe, maybe, but I mean, everything we used is pretty old actually i mean vaults have thousands of years compressed earth blocks also have thousands of years um, maybe the way we built uh, the spaces is something kind of new in the sense that we used um, i-beams um, and the i-beams uh, made us have wider spaces, open spaces, but uh, we, we don't see uh, our architecture something new or, or rebellious. Actually, it's, it's, it's more, I would say it's, it's a more traditional way, way of building than um, yeah. a new one. Um, I, guess, I guess what I'm getting at is that f by building in a sort of traditional way, that in itself is almost rebellious because I can't imagine that there's many houses... Uh, in Asuncion that are built using um, using natural earth and using these traditional techniques. No. Um, what would somebody typically, what would a typical house next door on a plot like this be done? Is that, is that a kind of concrete flat roof form or? Kind of. Um, you, you have those, you know, white houses, uh, kind of modern houses. Um, mm -hmm. You also have uh, ceramic uh, tiles and ceramic roofs, um, 
um, houses with uh, yeah bricks. Um, you have some new buildings in the area. You have uh, a lot of styles, but um, they, they all try to uh, seek like um, a sort of trend or fashion, you know. Um, yeah. So they're not unique in that that way. back to the client then what what was he looking for like what did he say to you to start this whole thing off um and result in what what he's got that is unique here well he gave us total freedom actually um he's he's that type of client all of the architects want um yeah it's 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 the perfect client where he's he gives you total freedom he's always fine with what you show him um, so yeah, we're, we're really thankful to, to Matthias. And what what was that like? What was um, did you present an idea where you said this is what you're going to do in terms of spaces of and these curved yes. roofs? And yes. how did he respond? Was he yeah? Was he all the way through? Did you try different things? Yeah, we we, we, we did some changes, but we normally uh, have a gathering in the office where we show him renderings first, the plans. Um, and then we did some adjustments, uh, functional adjustments. Um, but uh, in itself, it was always that idea. Yeah. What, what does the house mean to you in terms of what you think of residential design, like designing homes for people to live in? What, what are the important aspects here that you think are, are really key for designing homes in the 21st century? Well, um, one of the things we, we uh, admire is not, not of our project, but in the way of uh, living uh, specifically of, of our client is that uh, you don't need a huge house. You don't need uh, a lot of space in order for you to have a, a comfortable way of living. Um, and maybe this house... In Japan, it's big already, but um, here in Asuncion, uh, where, you, where, where the plots are huge and you have a lot of terrain, um, this is a very small house, very, very small house. Uh, so it also depends uh, who's, who's looking at the house, right? But um, an 100 square meter house is, for us, a, 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 a small house. But it has all of the all of the um, uh, you have everything inside there. You don't need more than that if you're living by yourself or with your girlfriend. Or um, it, it's like a loft. So um, we that that is something that we that we that we like about this house um, is that uh, in, in a small space you can have all of your commodities. Yeah. And 
maybe if we touch a bit more on that you're talking right at the beginning about that you, you bought this machine to create these bricks and i've seen some really good photos of the vault roof being constructed and it looks like sort of very simple techniques that you could sort of train someone to do and it's that you, you've kind of grooved the back of the bricks i think to take then some reinforced cement on the top can you tell it talk a little bit more about the kind of methods that you've used here for construction and, and how, how you learned them, where you got them from? Um, the machine has uh, like a form for the bricks and uh, the bricks can look like a Lego with two holes in it. And you can also make a, a complete um, field brick without the holes so for the for the, the the main facade the the filter the brick filter was made with the full brick without the holes and right. everything else the walls and the vaults were made with the lego type uh two hole brick um the two hole brick what it does is you can cut that in the middle we just we just found that during the process, right? Um, uh, we don't. We never saw that made. Maybe it's it's it was made somewhere else. We didn't see it. We just found out. You can cut that in the middle, and you have like uh, the half of the brick has like two U's now. Two U's. Yeah. Those two U's, like those two se semicircles, um, are the form, the the form work for the steel rods for the vault. Yeah. So um, it, it was like the perfect shape for you to place the bricks upside down and then inside those uh, channels, you could put the steel rods and then pour the concrete on top and then you have the vault. It's pretty simple. Yeah. It's a technique. Anybody can self-build basically. And it's just something we just stumbled upon. Yeah, so it's pretty experimental then in terms of trying it yeah. out. Were you, were, you, were you there on site quite a lot or part of your team? Like well, um, George, the thing here is that all of the architecture you see from Paraguay is built by the architects themselves. Um, ah, I yes, that's that. that's, Yeah, that's... Uh, it also gives that identity of craftsmanship and the architect testing and experimenting insight. So it, it, it also gives us that freedom of trying things. Um, you, like most of the architecture you see from here, um, if not all, is built by the own architects. So um, we have that uh, tradition here of being architects and builders. Mm -hmm. You've just changed my introduction then to the podcast episode, <laughs> architect and builder Horacio. Um, so that's very interesting. So the um, why do you think that is the case that in in Paraguay that that most architects build as well? There are more a lot of aspects. Uh, you have the economic aspect for one. Uh, Intellectual work is not um, very well paid here in Asuncion yet. Um, so architects traditionally 
had to build their own projects in order to um, earn more uh, mm -hmm. and make a living um, because people don't really uh, or are not used to uh, pay for projects, architectural projects. Um, so um, in the old days, architects did not charge for the architecture project. They just built and they earned their, their percentage. Um, so that's like a bad tradition we inherited. Um, but that's slowly changing. Um, newer generations obviously now pay for projects, um, understand intellectual work. And, uh, but still we have um, those chains attached to uh, the architect builder Um, where you have all of the control of all of the details of the construction. Um, if you do a project and someone else builds it, say a construction company, um, you lose that control over all of the mm -hmm. details. And they tend to do maybe the cheapest or not the best uh, way of building uh, your project. So... you. You normally lose their um, maybe quality or certain details you were thinking or the aspect of exper experimenting insight and yeah. that, that investigation you have uh, in contact of materials and local yeah. craftsmanship. And yeah. Yeah, I mean, me, me and my business partner, the first project that we did was one that we built ourselves. And we definitely learned from that process of, you know, sketching on the walls and figuring things out and doing things that we never would have done if we'd have been in the traditional role of drawing and, and managing. And so I can I can see how that was applied here on this house. So would the, the brick vaults that you did then and the roof, would they have been built? Did you know how you were going to build them before you figured out this cutting the Lego brick in half approach? No. No, and we also have that bad habit of um, uh, deciding while constructing. So yeah, um, it's it's a really bad habit, but at the same time, it gives you that freedom of testing, uh, experimenting, trying new things, and yeah. sometimes you fail and sometimes you succeed. And yeah. uh, that's the learning process, the constant learning process. If you're only uh, sketching inside the office and only making projects that someone else builds, then you're never going to have that opportunity of mm -hmm. testing and trying and investigating inside. Any, any fails on this project? Any things you learned from this one? Th there's always fails. And, and, and uh, that, that's how you learn, basically, right? Um, This was a really slow process. Um, Matias, the owner, had an infinite amount of uh, patience with us. Um, but at the end, he's happy and that's what it matters. Um, so yeah, every, every project has its, fa its failures. Um, we always fail in certain things and On this one, was there anything in particular that kind of made it longer? Well, making the bricks is not uh, an easy job. You 
if you have an automatic machine, which we're planning to buy, um, you can make around 3,000 to 5,000 bricks per day. And we were making 300 bricks per day. With <laughs> yeah. the, so so it's, it's a really slow process. Um, yeah, to produce all of the bricks, we had, we had a lot of time. Um, and then for the furniture, that lasted a lot because um, the, 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 the doors of the furnitures, uh, we wanted all of the doors when you open to also get inside the, the, the concrete um, uh, shelves. Yeah. And um, they were all custom made by uh, a blacksmith we normally work with. And to find out that mechanism that you could open and also get inside the shelf was a headache, um, yeah. a real, a real headache. Because we don't have we don't have all of the gadgets and industrial parts. We had to make them, so that was a real pain and slow process and a headache, but it worked. And the the idea of getting this machine for making bricks is that is there a plan then to be doing more houses and buildings using some of the techniques that you adopted and learned here? We 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 always wanted to produce the materials we use in our buildings. Mm. Not all, obviously. I mean, you know, uh, uh, all of the metals are impossible because you have to have an industry. But all of the uh, natural materials. We, we, we like to be part of the actual process of the fabrication of the materials. So um, it would be really nice to have all of our projects get built with our own bricks uh, and those bricks being uh, uncooked raw earth bricks. Um, so yeah, that, that's one of the goals we, we strive to. For someone that doesn't know, like an uncooked brick, uh, like a typical brick here in the UK is is baked at very high temperatures in a kiln to to harden it. Here, if it's uncooked, what makes it solid? What makes it usable? Is it in terms of a structural and finishing material? Two things: the compression, the, the compression force, and uh, the small amount of cement you put into it. What the cement does is it it doesn't give the brick cohesion but it gives the ability of uh, the brick to be left outside and uh, you, can, you can have it exposed to rainwater and stuff. Yeah. Um, Do they change over time then, these bricks? I, yes, of course. Um, like everything, it, it weathers and it ages, um, mm -hmm. but uh, what it gives the brick its structure is the compression. So, yeah. for example, the manually com compressed earth blocks have the, the, the strength of the, the person doing it. Mm. But in this automatic machines, you have tons of, tons of, uh, it was like three or four tons of strength compressing one brick. So, uh, you, you obviously have a much stronger brick if you have this machine 
but um, the manually compressed ones are also very very durable. Yeah. And I'm curious then if if you know a lot of architects build their own buildings in Paraguay. Are other people doing things similar to this? Do other people take this much effort and approach of, you know, wanting to make their own bricks, for example? Yes, yes, yes. That- we have a... Uh, our, Paraguay has now a pretty big circle of architects that are all... Um, that, that, that have the investigation and experimenting... Uh, type of architecture Um, and we all have similar um, ideals um, and we use similar materials because of uh, it's 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 they're all local materials Um, we use local craftsmanship Um, we all think of the weather and how architecture should respond to it um, we're all concerned with the socio-economic aspect of architecture. Um, we share a similar language. Um, and I think that's the architecture that you and the world is seeing. Mm-hmm. And um, what do you think from your the, the client that's living here? Like what's his response been to to living in this space now and, and I imagine adapting to, to living in this space himself. Well, um, what he said is that he's, he's very comfortable there. That, um, is what he wanted. And we've been there a couple of times drinking wine and it's, it's always very, uh, gratifying to, to spend the time with, with a friend in a space you build. Um, so, so yeah, um, he's, he's very happy with the house and have you, have you learned anything from his experience there of, of what it's like as an atmosphere or how it influences his daily life in the, in the space? Well, um, like, like everything, um, you, you always keep, uh, transforming the space. I mean, humans have, it's in our nature that when we live, we must transform. Um, and transform is also building. Uh, building is transforming. So you're always, you're constantly transforming um, every space. Um, and for example, um, in this case, um, there was a lot of light coming in uh, during the morning. So we had to fix that with some, with, with some wooden sheets placed on the outside. Um, so it's, it's always a trial and error. You, you must test the space. And, okay. There's a lot of light or there's too little light. We need more light. Um, there's always those details that you, you can only test them while inhabiting the space. Um, yeah, it's it's very normal, and we always tell our clients that once the the, the building is done, um, there's always a trial phase that uh, there are still some some things to to fix, some things to adjust, uh, to transform, and I think 
that's that's the way architecture works. Unless it's I don't know uh, a museum or something that is that is not a house. Hmm. I think that's really interesting. If, I do think a lot of time architecture is viewed as this finished product and it's done, it's handed over and somebody moves in. But here on this house, you've, you've allowed the person to live there. You've, you've gained sort of some response and feedback and then you've gone back in and adapted. I mean, that's probably also an, another advantage of building it yourself that that's more likely to happen. Whereas in a, like in a traditional sense in the UK, the builder's off and then they're busy on the next project and probably don't want to come back. Um, that, do you think that is one um, of the, the advantages? Yes, uh, buildings are never finished. Uh, that's something we have present, very present. Uh, they're they're never finished. They're they're handed, like you said. Um, yeah. Um, and not not only no not only the the functional aspect or, or the building aspect, but also um, it's it's never finished in its material aspect. Um, it's always weathering and it's transforming. And you have the mm. garden, and you have things changing. So it's an, a never-ending process. Uh, you just have to know when you hand it uh, to the client and say, "Okay, this is uh, now you can move." And when you move, we can still change things. Um, but I think that's that's the nature of our profession. I mean, it's 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 a mm. never-ending thing. Do you ever find it hard to hand it over when you spent so much time designing and then making it yourself? Yes, um, it's, it's, you, you never know. I mean, it depends on the pressure your client gives you. It depends on the time you've spent uh, building. It depends on so many things. Um, but you have to decide and say, okay, now you can move. And from now, we're going to still be changing things and adjusting. And yeah. I think uh, most of the people understand that. Some do not. Because they think as architecture as this, uh, finished thing that should be working when you hand the keys over, but it, it, it's not like that. Yeah, interesting. Um, I've just got one more question, just about just going back on what you're saying about in Paraguay that you know most architects um, build as well as as design and that kind of history of paying for some professional intellectual services. Say, um, what does that like? Did you go into architecture? As in, you trained because you wanted to be an architect, and then learn the skills of building, or did it? Does it? Did it work the other way around? Like, what's what's common in in Paraguay? Do people kind of become architects and then think, okay, we've got to figure out how to build this stuff now, and, and then learn? Most do, but some do not. Um, some had the experience of uh, having maybe their parents are architects, or their parents are builders, or. Uh, their uncles, um, so they had that contact with construction at a very early age. Um, my uncle was an architect, so I always knew I was going to study architecture. But I was like, when I was in school, I was also uh, thinking of studying music. I'm a drummer, um, and I've always uh, loved music, so I was in that constant um, um, uncertainty. Mm -hmm. uh, but when the time came, I decided towards architecture without even knowing what architecture was, actually. Because you get to know what architecture is maybe like when you start working. College doesn't give you uh, the, the broad spectrum of what architecture is. They just give you a small hint 
So when I started working, I was like in second or third year. I can't remember very well. But when I started working, I had that first contact with architecture, that material, um, tactile, experimental uh, uh, contact with architecture. And that's where my interest grew. And then it, it's, it's, it was a matter of time that I started uh, uncovering what architecture really was. Also, traveling uh, made us have real-life contact with uh, architecture. So that was also part of the experience of getting to know what architecture really was for us, at least. Because Vivi and I both organize architecture trips every single year. Um, since 2010 and we've traveled all over the world um, uh, we've visited so many architectural office uh, so many projects that having that experience also uh, broaden, broadens our, our, our uh, perspective of, of what architecture really is mm-hmm. yeah well I think uh- I mean, I just, I just think this project's amazing. I think it's really good, and just congratulations on on such a good uh, design and something so unique and very livable. And you've built it yourself. I think that's very, <laughs> very impressive. Um, I'm now, Horatio, going to ask you the three questions that I ask all my guests at the end of interviews. Uh, and the first one starts with you and and where you live. And if I could ask you, what what is the one thing that really annoys you in your own home? Well. Um... I always uh, find this problem, I'm a little bit of a maniac, but um, (laughs) the noise problem is something that wakes me up, Um, but I find that everywhere. So it's not a a home problem, it's it's a personal problem that I wake up, I get, uh, I wake up really easily, so I might need a, a silent chamber or something like that to sleep. Um, <laughs> that must be a challenge of subtropical architecture, though, because of the absolutely, massive ventilation, absolutely. but then you can't seal off sound. How do you generally deal with that? Well, you 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 you, you have to deal with uh, nature and the, the birds chirping yeah. and the well. That, that, I mean, I'll just have to get used to it. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then the next question you were saying about traveling, doing a lot of traveling and that informing your work and seeing architecture around the world. If you could choose one house um, that you visited that has really inspired you um, and tell me why. Maybe if I have to choose one, uh, I choose uh, Ray Capes house in Pacific Palisades. Uh, that was it's, it's one of our favorite projects with Vivi. We've been there 2019, and we were there a couple of months before Ray Capedai. So we actually got his signature in, in our book, and that was a really good experience. We really yeah. like his house. It's a very experimental, wooden, uh, beautiful, in contact with nature. It's, it's an amazing house. Is that the one where there's open plan living spaces that step down? There's various sort of levels to the. 
Yes, yes. In order to get to the house, you have to uh, like climb uh, some uh, stair a staircase, and then you get next to a like a stream. It, you have a, a small yeah. stream running down with a lot of rocks, and then you have this wooden uh, cross laminated timber um, yeah. house. It's a beautiful space. American architect, right? Yeah, he. I think yes. it was one of the early episodes I had with Arboreal Architects. He he also picked the um, similar house, uh, this house actually, for the one that he'd that he'd visited. Wow. <laughs> um, beautiful house. And then, if you could choose any designer to design you a new home, who would you choose? Um, is this uh, a living architect or no? Yeah, alive or dead. Anybody. Live or dead. Or if, if, if it's a live architect, I maybe Svidian Radic. We really like what he does. He's a Chilean architect. Um, yeah. I don't know if you've heard about it. Svidian yeah, Radic. Um, and what were you going to say? Oh, with Radic, I'd like to get him on the podcast. And I was, I was looking at one of his projects recently, but then he doesn't have a website or anything. He's very, I don't know if you've noticed that he has no presence anywhere. No page, no Instagram account. Uh, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, he's out of the flashlight. Yeah. Well, if anyone's listening that knows how to get hold of him, <laughs> let me know. <laughs> and so your architect, um, they're not living. Who would you choose? Um, maybe Paulo Mendes, who died uh, last year, Paulo Mendes da Rocha. I got to know him. Uh, I got to know his his projects, radical architect, um, so coherent. His way of thinking and making architecture it's 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 uh, incredible what he did. Right. Okay. Well. Um, yeah, congratulations again on the project and thank you very much for sharing your time uh, with the listener to tell us about, about the house. Thank you, George, for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you'd like to find out more about Horacio and his studio Equipo de Arquitectura, then please visit the website at anotherarchitecturepodcast.com or visit the Instagram page to see the work of all my guests. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then please leave a review as it's a great way to help other people find the podcast. In episode 13 of the podcast, I featured another home designed for a tropical climate. I discussed No Footprint House with the architect Oliver Shute of the studio A01. If you'd like to listen to the episode, you can play it via the episodes link on anotherarchitecturepodcast.com. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode, and thanks again for listening.